0: Hello, and welcome to episode 95 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and I'm very excited for this episode with a first time guest. I'm welcoming Joe Poznanski. Hi there, Joe. Hi, how you doing? Doing great. Um, Joe is a senior writer for The Athletic. Many of you might know him as a baseball writer, a football writer, um, all sorts of stuff. He's also written about tennis many times over his uh, illustrious journalistic career. Uh, He's the author of The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini, which I strongly recommend. Even though I'd already read a Houdini biography, I really enjoyed that one. And coming coming in September, he's releasing the Baseball 100, which looks like 736 pages of (laughs) enjoyment, even for those of us who read all 100 of uh, uh, of the bios on The Athletic. And... I have to throw in also that he's the author of the soul of baseball, which is a book about his travels with the baseball legend, Buck O'Neill. And I command you all to read it, even though this is a tennis podcast and there's, I don't think there's a word of tennis in the book, but still I command you. (laughs) So Joe, thank you very much for, for joining me to talk tennis. Um, yesterday was the Australian opens men's final Novak Djokovic held off Daniel Medvedev and with style. Now, I just want to warn both you and our listeners. I always say this is a, a goat talk free zone, and I hate talking about the greatest of all time, which is all just a way of saying we're probably gonna talk about it anyway. Sure. But we can maybe hold it off for five minutes. So let's talk, let's talk about Daniel Medvedev. He didn't look that great in the final, although he had a really excellent tournament rounding out an awesome few months. How far away do you think he is from being up there with Djokovic and Nadal?
1: Well, I, I, I gotta say, I was surprised that that he he didn't uh, he didn't play well in in the final because he has been he's been amazing. You know Djokovic earlier in the week and maybe this was mind games or whatever. He called Medvedev uh the favorite uh you know a couple of days before the final and and I people were joking about that and whatever. Um but I thought he was playing better than anybody in the world. I mean obviously you know all about the the streak and all the top 10 Players he beat in a row, and and uh, what it was 20, 20 consecutive victories, and but I thought wh- I I really watched closely the the match the semifinal match against Tsitsipas, and I mean that that was a guy who just I, I mean he was unbeatable. Uh, I just thought absolutely unbeatable. I mean it was. Afterward, I just thought it was very interesting the way C.C. Paz is like saying, you know, he his serve is like John Isner's, and he, from the baseline he's just pounding the ball from both sides. I I really thought it was going to be a not only a competitive match. I did not. I, I mean, if I had to pick, I mean, I guess you all you you never pick against Djokovic on on uh, you know in Australia, but I, I thought Medvedev is at that level now. I mean, you know, he's at the at the level to beat anybody now. So I was very surprised, and I don't know what it was. Uh, I mean, I don't think it was – I don't think it was he was tired. I don't think – I maybe the pressure got a little bit to him. Maybe Djokovic is just, you know, such a smart player. But I, I honestly think he's at that level, um, but he wasn't yesterday. It was a weird one for me, I thought. Yeah, I,
0: I I think just about everybody was surprised at how how lopsided the result was, and and it it makes you wonder. Like he looks, you're right. He looked so great against Tsitsipas. He's looked so good for for months now. I mean, it, it, do we put this down to Medvedev just not really showing up for the final, or do you think it, it, does Djokovic have some you know, some magic powers or some resources in his game <laughs> that we didn't give him credit for before?
1: Well, I think we should always give him credit for it because I think he does have some magic powers. I mean, it, it's it's. Truly incredible. Um, you know, we, we could talk all about him and the greatest of all time thing that we're going to try to avoid. But, uh, you know, I think there's something about Djokovic you can get in your head. I mean, you're, you know, the way he just pounds back your serve. I think that's, that's a mind game all its own. I think, you know, it, when when Medvedev is at his best, he's he doesn't miss, and but you know nobody's better at not missing than Djokovic. So so their games kind of clash a little bit, especially over five sets. Um, but I think there was something else, I, and I don't know what it is. I, you know, I I thought after Medvedev's. You know, really remarkable performance against uh, against Nadal at the U.S. Open final. You know, coming back from two sets down and and putting himself in a position to to potentially win that match. I just thought, man, he is he is going to show and he's going to show up big time. Uh, I, I just it seemed it seemed like his moment. You know, and and so it's a setback, and I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he is going over it in his mind again and again and again with his, with his coaches and, and, and everybody else. But I, this whole young generation of players baffle me. Uh, I mean, these, these guys, there's no question at the top of their game. They're, they're, you know, they're they have dominant skills, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're great players. And yet time and time and time again, they have not proven the ability to beat the big three. And, and it's, uh, it's uh, it's concerning. I mean, because I think the big Three's still going. You know, at least two of the big three are going to still be around for a little while. Yeah,
0: definitely. And with Medvedev in particular, he's he's got a really strong surface preference. He's so good on hard courts, and yeah. I think he joked after the final that his goal for Roland Garros was just to win a match this time. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it, obviously, we're not talking about Medvedev as a, a real French Open contender, but it seems like his game. It, it, it doesn't not work on clay courts, right? I mean,
1: it, 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 I don't understand. Yeah, I don't understand why he's not a, a fantastic cricket. I mean, I guess he doesn't move quite as well as as some of the uh, as you know as, as certainly as Nadal or Djokovic or or even Team maybe. Um, but you know, I, the the way he hits the ball from both sides, uh, you know, the consistency, his ability to go into that never miss mode that that is. Feels to me like that would be pretty perfect for the clay courts. I, I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm a little surprised. Maybe he's not, you know, sort of physically strong enough to to just to just be out there and pound it for for five hours or something. But I, I don't know. I, it, it's if you had said to me what is his favorite surface, of course I would have said hard courts. But I would have thought, well, he he's he'll be fantastic on the clay. I mean, there's there's no reason in his game that he's not. And, uh, so yeah, it's a little bit surprising and it's also a little bit surprising that, that these specialists have come along after, after, you know, the big four. I mean, if you want to put Murray in where all, all of those guys were so good on all the surfaces, you know, there wasn't obviously Nadal's a clay court. You know, quote unquote specialist, but I mean, look at look at what he's done at Wimbledon and 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 the U.S. Open in particular. The uh, doll, I mean, F- Federer was obviously great in all the services and would have won several more clay courts, I think, if, had it not been for Nadal and Djokovic. You know, his his game just is perfect for every place he plays. So, uh, I don't know. I, these, like I say, these young guys kind of. They baffle me. This generation baffles me a little bit. And I, you know, I, as a guy who writes about a lot of different sports, it feels a little bit to me like the generation that came after Tiger Woods, uh, where there was just a whole bunch of guys that had a lot of talent and and they just couldn't work it out. who was going to actually, uh, you know, replace him as as the best player in the world? And uh, it feels that way with these young. And Medvedev to me is the head of the class of of this of this young generation, and yet. Yeah, i don't know it sure looked like there was something missing uh in, in that final yesterday
0: yeah i mean it it, it it it's certainly been that way for what a decade now we've seen yeah. various challengers we talk about as being the next guy and then nothing happens and it, it seems like we're closer than we've ever been yes you know, medvedev's pushing so close um i mean the team's occasionally beating these guys Tsitsipas knocked out nadal on uh, coming back from two sets to love um, so you, you, this is as close as we've been. Is that just because Djokovic and Nadal are finally, they're finally so old that they're only going to be able to <laughs> hang on for so long? Or, I mean, is this, is this a different class of players who can finally challenge these guys on their own terms?
1: It's a good question. I, you know, if just as a, you know, somebody from seeing it, obviously, for, you know, somewhat from afar, um, it feels to me like it's a little bit of a combination of both. Uh, I thought... Nadal in in that that was a great match against Pass. Uh and and Nadal should have closed it out in three sets and I think the younger Nadal does close it out in three sets, um, but you know this this I, I think I think I sent you a, a note about this I, I'm really fascinated about Nadal in five setters and he's really you know he he had a couple of big wins in five sets uh, in the last couple of years but his record in five sets since he was a young player is is pretty poor, uh, certainly for one of the all-time, maybe the all-time greatest player. And and so I do wonder about his body and, you know, he the, the, the way he puts it in. Djokovic does not seem to me to be stepping down. It seems to me like he finds, you know, there are things that he doesn't do as well probably as he was when he was younger, but then he adds, I mean, his serve during this Australian Open, uh, was amazing and and you know he just adds different elements to his game he's much better at the net now but i also think that this young generation is better i, I mean i don't when i see uh cc play when i see team play when i see medvedev play when i see zverev play at their best i mean they're they're fantastic i mean it, it does feel like you know they're they're the, the people that were trying to catch up with Djokovic and, and Federer and Adal all seemed to have some sort of some sort of weaknesses in their games, you know. There there was something missing. They had they had an incredible you know, they were they were very good players, but they were they were not complete players the way I think that this young generation is. So we're definitely closer. Uh but it does feel like at some point that some it should have happened already. And that's, that's the think the surprising thing. I, I thought it was very surprising, but, but, but correct when Djokovic just flat out said, you know, Hey, you, these young guys, you know, they're, they're terrific, but they've got to do it, you know, and we're not, I'm not going to give them anything. And, and uh, you know, some, it was made a pretty big deal, but he's right. I, I, I don't really know uh, when these young guys, I mean, they've, they've certainly all have the talent to, to do it. Those four guys All of the town to be number one in the world in my mind and uh uh but they're not doing it yet and and again i i don't know what that is exactly but i also thought it was really interesting i'm really curious what you thought in the u.s open last year which obviously was a very weird tournament on many levels but after djokovic got uh disqualified from the tournament you know, you get in the final. You finally get two of these young guys together, team and and uh, and Zverev playing in this in this five set final. That man, it felt like both those guys were trying to lose. It, it did not. It did not feel like either one of those guys quite knew what to do in the big moments. And then you know, toward the end, they were both so tired. They were just basically like hitting back and forth like weekend players. I just felt that was so weird. And and to me, that's sort of representative of this group just not not quite breaking through, you know? Yeah, it's it, it, and
0: that's actually what I wanted to ask you about next, that all these guys have wins against, yes. and I have checked all the head heads, but pretty much all the guys we're talking about have beaten everybody in the big four, at least at least once or twice on some surface or other. But it's not happening in terms of slams. It takes, a, it takes Djokovic hitting a lines person for somebody else to win a <laughs> slam. And... As a, a, I, I'm about as a devoted a stats guy as you can, uh, as you can find, and I hate sure. the idea of a mystique or right. some like magic intangibles. But it starts to feel like that, right? That, that there's no explanation for the fact that, I mean, if, if Nadal is showing weakness in five sets, but they still usually can't beat him at yeah. slams. We're
1: they, we're running out of logical explanations, right? Well. Yes. I I think that's right. I I think, you know, I I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I'm a huge, huge stats guy. And, and, uh, and so, you know, I, I know there's more to it. I mean, there's, there's the, the greatness of Nadal Federer and, and particularly Djokovic who I, you know, seems to me to be the, the one who's going to last the longest, the, 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 I mean, we've we've been calling those guys the three greatest players forever, right? And that's been the big argument and going back and forth. But in some ways, I wonder if we still sort of underappreciate how much better they are than everybody else. Because, you know, here's this new generation. There's just no reason that that these guys they hit the ball harder, they they serve harder. They they should be able to move at least as well as 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 guys in their thirties and late thirties in the case of, of Federer, um, but they don't in the big moments in the five set matches in the in the Grand Slams they can't win and and like I say some of it's got to be mental some of it has to be I thought the first set was was going along you know pretty well in the in in the Australian final yesterday. It was going along pretty well for Medvedev. He got broken early, but he broke back and it's it's 5 all and he just he just lost it. I mean, he just absolutely lost it and just then just played really poorly the rest of the match and you almost wonder if there was a moment in his head. And and Medvedev seems to me to be one of the most, you know, brilliant tacticians uh out there on on you know as a as a tennis player but you almost wonder if it was in his head like oh my gosh I'm playing Djokovic in Australia I'm not going to win this match I mean it it that's what it felt like to me it felt like he just turned off and all of these guys seem to have that moment team has had success uh against Djokovic in in Australia which is really good but then he can't he can't figure out quite what to do with Nadal there uh, at Wimbledon, nobody knows what to do with Djokovic at this point. And, and on the hard courts, we, we just saw it. It's, it really is, uh, there has to be something. I mean, yes, I think there are things that you can see statistically and, and that, that separate those three players from everybody else, but, but there has to be something mental going on here. Okay, that's a
0: it's a it's a great segue to talking about the women's final, and I do want to give that its due, or the women's field yes. in general. So Naomi Osaka is kind of the the exact opposite of everything we're talking about. <laughs> she's she's not head and shoulders a, a a great new player in the sense that she's winning fifty two weeks a year. Right. She is completely unfazed by the idea of going toe to toe with Serena Williams, who's you know at, at, has at least the stature of a Federer, Djokovic, Nadal. Sure. And nonetheless, she's won four majors. She's n- never lost a match in the quarterfinals or later of a major. Uh, so are, are the rules just different in the women's game now? Are the rules different for Osaka? Like, it, it, how, how do we explain the fact that the, the, the men her age and a little older are, are getting stopped before the finish line and Osaka is just you know, cruising four times now?
1: Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't think it's a difference in the women's game. I think it is specifically a difference with Naomi Osaka. I, she is, boy, I love watching her play. She is such a fascinating character to me because you're right. I mean, she's not a 52. It, it's, it always stuns me. You know, I'll just, i I'm, nowadays I check in every week and I'm watching as, as much as I can. I watch tennis all the time, but you know, when I used to check in sort of not not only for uh the majors, but for the for the big tournaments, I always be like, how is she ranked number three or number four or number like how is this possible? Because she is when she's at her best, she is head and shoulders above everybody else in the world. I, I don't think there's anybody in the world that can beat her. Uh I mean, I think it's I think the gap is it's not we're not going to have another gap quite like Serena to the rest of the world, but it's, it's kind of like that. I mean, she, she is to me, she, when she's hitting her serve and, and pounding the forehand, she's, I don't think anybody can touch her and she becomes that player for, you know, for, for now four majors where she, I mean, she absolutely obliterated Serena obliterated her. And and you know obviously this is not this is a thirty nine year old Serena she's not the same player she's still a, uh, just a dominating force when she plays and she had no chance whatsoever against Osaka even even after getting off to a, a you know a, a good start she had absolutely no chance against Osaka and and so I think there's something about her I I don't know it it feels like maybe she just isn't the type of person that's gonna like. It's like she needs an occasion, she needs the moment to inspire her to play her best tennis because you know, she'll go to other tournaments and and yeah, you know better than anybody, she'll she'll absolutely, you know, drop out and and lose to, you know, somebody you just would never believe. She'll, you know, double fault 15 times and and just like it's weird, but when she locks in and and maybe that is what separates. It's like she has that ability and I, I don't know what this is statistically, uh, you know, we, we have in baseball, we talk all the time about, you know, are there really clutch hitters, uh, are there really players who can become better hitters, uh, when, uh, when they're, you know, the, the situation demands it. And, and, you know, statistically it does, it seems like, no, that's probably, you know, a little bit of myth making that, that the baseball writers have gone through, through the years, but wow it sure feels like that she has a level she can go to when the when the you know situation demands it and when the, when she's on that stage in front of the world in in a in a you know a quarter final semi final final of a of a of a grand slam uh it feels like she goes to another place and and none of the none of the younger generation on the men's side have done that
0: and it, there's another parallel between Osaka and, and Medvedev that probably stands up a little better in that Osaka has won all four of her slams on hard courts. Yes. And she's also been pretty miserable on clay and grass. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it seems like there, there might be more of a reason for it. Like Osaka's game is probably tailored more towards hard courts. Do you think that's something she'll be able to develop and maybe find her way on... And to get some of that big stage magic on surfaces she's not as comfortable on i would
1: i would think on clay i don't i don't i mean on a grass rather i don't i don't quite know why her game wouldn't you know especially the way the wimbledon has become you know where it's where it's you can rally more and and uh, it's not quite just you know one shot two shot uh tennis uh it feels to me like wimbledon would be a great stage for her and and i know she's not had success there but but it's it feels to me like that's a success clay is is tougher uh i don't know it it feels like you know if if it comes down to like these these long rallies and 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 just just outwilling your opponent i don't know if that's quite her game she's such a she's such a power player that if you know i don't know what's going to happen on the clay with her um but I don't see why your hardcore success, I mean, maybe you can explain to me what it what do you think it is statistically. Uh, I don't know why your hardcore success has not or will not uh, uh, turn into grass court success.
0: No, and I, I think all bets are off as far as surface preferences in the women's game. Because in the last two years, we've had Simona Halep, the yes. presumptive clay court favorite win at Wimbledon, and right. Ashley Barty, the presumptive grass court favorite win at Roland Garros. So, I mean, who's to say? Naomi mean, Osaka <laughs> can't win them both. I don't know. That's true. Uh, so, o- o- Osaka has been working for a little while with Vim Fassett, who is sort of the, the closest thing in the WTA to a, a super coach. He's worked with Kim Kleister, Simona Halep, um, right. Joanna Conta. I mean, if we put all of his players together, he'd probably have the greatest women's resume of all time, <laughs> and I, I, I'm I'll never quite sure how to think about coaching in tennis and it's especially it feels especially tricky with women because there's this whole vibe on broadcasts where there's the where where there's a young woman on the court and there's the the older man that the cameras keep going to as her mentor or something and commentators like to talk about them a lot so I mean obviously the coach plays a role but maybe we maybe we sometimes go too far in ascribing a role to that I'm curious how you how you think about that? I mean, do, do we give coaches too much credit, too little credit?
1: Is it, a, it, it is it more like I say, maybe more of an issue in the women's game? Yeah, it's, it's it's a it's a really good question. I I one of my favorite things I you know I've written about this uh, is is watching players, men and women, um, scream at their boxes during matches. You know, it's, it's it's seeing Djokovic you know look up and and scream at them after he misses a shot like. And seemingly screaming at them in a sort of, I am blaming you for this sort of way, (laughs) uh, which I just think is just wonderful. Um, So so I think coaches must play a much larger role. Like to me, it doesn't feel like, you know, this is so one-on-one and no matter how much preparation you do, there, there are so many adjustments that you need to make in your own mind, on the fly, you know, point by point, game by game. And, and, you know, the coaches are, are there and they can, you know, they can, they can do whatever they do, but I mean, it doesn't feel like that they have that big a role, but yet on the other hand, uh, I've just, we've just seen the success that, that coaches can bring to players. And, and, you know, I think that a lot of it's mental, Uh, a lot of it is giving them an outlet to, to uh, sort of. You know, I, I here's one thing I've often thought about with tennis. I mean, certainly it's this way as a as a very very you know mediocre recreational player. It's lonely out there uh, when you're, especially when you know playing singles doubles. You can you can always blame the other guy, but when you're playing singles and you miss a shot or you're getting run off the court, I I thought that. Daniil Medvedev was the loneliest guy in the world during that, during that he didn't know what to do. He seemed lost, you know, he's smashing his racket and, and it didn't, it didn't do anything for him. You know, it's like, you you can blame the racket, you can blame your coaches, you can blame whoever, but really you're so alone out there. And, uh, and I think that that's gotta be, that feeling has to be so much of what coaches can do for, for players. And, you know, when, in the case of Osaka, I, she seems pretty mercurial. I mean, there are weeks that she just isn't there and, and other weeks that she's far and away the best player in the world. And so I, I wonder how much of it is that, how much of it is mental, how much of it is, is giving them outlets. Um, and then of course the strategic elements of these things, uh, you know, she, to me, I, Djokovic is the best I, I've ever seen at being whatever player he needed to be out there. Uh, you know, he, he felt to me like he can, he can become, he can become a lot of different kinds of players, whatever the, you know, situation requires. And Osaka has a little bit of that. I mean, obviously she always plays her, her game and it's always and forehand, but there's something about her. Like when she, when she went out there against Serena, like she, she knew that she had to be a certain kind of player I mean and and that was a player who was who was not gonna back down from Serena's you know and when Serena hit a good shot she wasn't gonna just just fall apart about it I mean she there there had to be a certain mental strength but when she played Brady in the final, it was much different I mean it was basically her she just the sense to me was that hey I'm the only player on the court kind of kind of sense. So I I do think that coaches probably must play a very big role in determining what kind of person they are out there and and giving them an outlet, I think, for, for those moments when things go bad.
0: So I'm glad you mentioned Brady because she's kind of the, the forgotten woman in this whole story. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: and she's she's one of a, a really amazing crop of, of young American women right now. And yeah. We've got Sophia Kennan, Coco Gauff, Alison Risk, Sloan Stevens, Jessica Pegula, Shelby Rogers. And I mean, that's not even the whole list. It's no. it's, it, it, it's probably the strongest crop of young women we've seen from America in a long time. And it, it seems like this is an underreported story, maybe because... I was going to say because there's no clear star there, but I mean, Kenan has a slam. It sounds like a pretty good resonance yeah. to me. Um, is there any reason you can think of? I mean, first of all, I don't know if you agree with me that this is an underreported story. But if, if you do agree, is there is there a reason why this is flying under the radar?
1: Well, I think I think it's flying under the radar because, in part because one of them has not clearly stepped up as as the as the sort of leader in the in the class, right? I mean I don't think Coco Goff's rise certainly has not been underreported, right? I mean the, yeah. the, we, when when she was when she was there she was she was the biggest story going. Uh I think Kennan is is underappreciated and underrated. I think her story was underreported when she won the slam and and now you know she she really is struggling now, and and you wonder what the heck is going on there. Uh, obviously, this is this is a big big moment for for Jen Brady stepping up the way that she did. So you know it doesn't feel like there's a clarity yet. It's it's like who in this group is going to is going to be the dominant player? Who is going to you know take Serena's spot? Uh, I think that is. That is part of the reason why I don't think that that the story's been reported The other reason is and and this is it's this doesn't speak well but it seems like such a it's been such a dry period for the American men for so long now I I mean you know maybe there's a, a little bit of a of a youth thing happening now with with Taylor Fritz and 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 a couple of other guys. Uh, but it feels like it feels like that story the fact that that, that the men, have just not been able to find their way. Uh, that story feels like that's been reported more uh, and it's almost been taken for granted that, uh, that there are so many great women's uh, American players.
0: Yeah. And there, there, have always been some, and I, I guess another aspect of that problem is, is something you hinted at with, with the way you started that answer that tennis coverage is so star-dominated. It's yeah. so top-heavy that, I mean, even... I, I talked to a, a, a another guy who's not 100% tennis a couple of weeks ago, and, and he was talking about the the group of Zverev, Medvedev, team, and so on, and he said that he, he wasn't 100% sure how to distinguish between them. He didn't mean like that he wouldn't recognize them on the street, but right. just thinking about their games, it, it's not as clear-cut as Federer, Djokovic, at all. Medvedev, team Zverev is... I it, mean, it, it, it's less clear what sets them apart as players. And, and I think on, on the women's side, we're getting a sense of Osaka very clearly. But beyond that, it's it, it is messier, partly because there are so many challengers, but partly because tennis coverage is so geared to a few slam winners and maybe five players, period, at any given time. And I mean, do you think that's something that should be better, could be better? Or is that just kind of the nature of the beast that we have to live with?
1: Well, I believe it is a little bit the nature of the beast. Um, I feel like forever, you know, your your top two, three, four players in the world uh, get 95% of the coverage. And, you know, if you could be number eight in the world and be get nothing. I mean, as far as as international and national coverage, you know, I mean, uh, Jack Sock was top 10 in the world at one point. John Isner was top 10 in the world at one point. And you you never got the sense that that they were, you know it's it's there's there's no it, like I can speak specifically for American coverage. There's no real place uh, in 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 sort of widespread coverage for being the best American tennis player if you are not the best player or at least one of the top two or three or four players. Uh, the women's game is a little bit different because. Uh, so many different women win majors, right? It's been, it's been a good while since, I mean, Serena dominated everything. It's been a few years now. Uh, And, and so, you know, you almost, it's, it's almost like it's okay. Who's the, who's the player of this major? Like who's, who's the one that's going to step up and, and become that player and Osaka is now beginning to is beginning to, you know, move, push past that. But, you know, for, for a while there, it was like, oh, okay, so Ashley Barty's number one in the world. Oh, now Simona Halep's number one in the world. Oh, what, what about Kvitova? What about uh, Mertens? What about, you know, uh, Svitolina? I mean, it's like, it's like they're, it's hard, I think, it, I don't think people are going to be able to keep that many tennis players in their own minds. If you're not a big tennis fan, you're not going to follow, uh, you know, anything sort of beyond. And and it's the same way in golf, by the way, where I don't think that you follow, you know, more than a handful of players that, you know, and, and, and get excited about because every major championship they, they show up and and they're there to they're there and they're a favorite and and you think they may win. You know, with the women's game, it's been a little while since we've had one of those kinds of players, and in the men's game, we've only had, three, you know, three or four players that had a chance to even win a major championship. So, so there really wasn't any room for anybody else. So, I think, I think that's why. I think it's exactly what you said. It's the top-heavy nature of of coverage, not only uh, for tennis, but I think for individual sports in general.
0: Yeah, that, and, and that's a good point. I, I, I mean, since since I have spent a lot of time with baseball and other team sports. I always think, think of how many baseball players, baseball fans can keep in their head, or sure. even casual baseball fans keep in their head. I mean, I don't really follow hockey, but I could tell you something about 50 hockey players. Right. And it, with tennis, I feel like an equivalent level of tennis fan could tell you about seven. Yeah. And it's a little frustrating, because I mean, I want to talk about all 50. Why can't we talk about all 50? Um, I agree,
1: well, I agree. But I also think that in order to, to feel that, like in baseball, I mean, there are 30 teams, right? So, you know, a couple of players on each team and, 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 you know, it's not, it's not quite that way in tennis. And also I I do, I think that the person you had on the the podcast uh, before who talked about not really being able to separate different players, I, I think you have to watch a lot of tennis to, to sort of be able to tell, the subtle differences between a, a Zverev and a, and a, and a Medvedev and a, and you know, and okay, which one has the two handed backhand, which one is the one handed backhand and, and, and where is titsipas in that? And where is, you know, and so I think that, that players that have particular skills, like I think people knew John Isner just because of the serve. Uh, I think that there are certain ways that, that players can come along. Like, I think there are, probably some people know Schwartzman because he's so unique being so small and all of that. So I, I do think there's some of that, but I, but I think the the subtleties between the different players, uh, I think you have to, you have to follow it pretty closely to sort of appreciate that.
0: Yeah, that's definitely true. And, and, and to the extent that games have sort of merged into one defining style, I mean, it's not, it's not really just one style, but it's closer to one style yeah. thinking back to, to Borg McEnroe. Um, so let's see, we could probably talk all day about these players, but because, I mean, I mentioned at the outset that that I loved your athletic essays about the Baseball 100 and the, the Outsiders series, and I, I can't help but think about some of these issues as they pertain to tennis, because I think about everything as it pertains to tennis, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so one thing you wrote... It, you were writing about Novak Djokovic's 2011 season um, back at the time. And I love this line. You said the problem with ever in tennis, like in so many sports is that ever just isn't a very long time at all. So, I mean, we talk about Borg and Mackinac like it's the prehistoric era when it was not that long ago. And we'll throw in Rod Laver's name in the goat debate or Margaret Court's name, but people rarely go back further than that. And, and I wonder whether you think it is that wrong. I mean, is there a way to talk about this stuff and incorporate Bill Tilden and Suzanne Longlin and Maureen Connolly and
1: just have a, a broader view that goes back maybe a hundred years? I I would think so. And, and hope so. And certainly, you know, I've thought in my mind that sort of my, one of my dream things would be to do a tennis 100, the way I did with the baseball 100, or I would rank the hundred greatest players, men and women in, in, in one. And, and, you know, and I think the only way to do that is to judge the player against their own time, right? You, I mean, your point is a hundred percent right. Not only do we think of Borg and McEnroe and Lendl and Connors and and those guys as as uh, you know prehistoric, I mean, we're at the point now where Agassiz and Sampras have almost become prehistoric, right? I mean, it's it's that's that's right. That's the one generation before this, and and yet, you know. It, because Federer, you know one more Wimbledon suddenly Sampras's name is you know, you, you you'll hear people talk about him, but nobody really calls him the greatest of all time, which they did uh, at the time that that he was playing after he he set the the, the majors record so uh or set it you know in the open air, I guess. Uh, so you know, it's a very it's a very tricky thing. I I, I feel like that that there's no way, to not see these three guys that, that have so dominated the sport for so long. It's not, it's hard not to see them as being sort of a, a, a breed apart just because of the length of time that they were dominant and, and have, and are still dominant as we just saw. Uh, it's hard, it's hard not to put them in their own category. Um, and much in the same way that it's hard not to put Serena in her own category for, for dominating the way that she has. But, and and you also, it's also because the equipment is so different and has changed so much, you go back and you watch Steffi Graf play and you're like, well, she can't play with, with Serena. I mean, she just doesn't hit the ball nearly as high. She hit the ball unbelievably hard for her time. But you know, you 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 watch the film and you're like, well, that's you know, look how much harder Serena and, and players today hit, um, but it's not fair because they're playing with different equipment and it's just a different time. So I do think that if you really are talking about okay, who are the greatest players, you you have to judge them against their own time. And and Steffi was every bit as dominant in her time, if not more dominant at certain times. Uh, than Serena was, uh, you know, and 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 then you go before that, and Martina was every bit as dominant in her time uh, as Steffi was in her time, and as as Serena has been in her time, and, and then you go back a little further, and and you look at, at Chris Everett in the 70s. I mean, it's so I I do think you do have to judge people against their own time, and and uh, you know, it's it, it's tough. Tennis makes it particularly tough because the game changes so much as the equipment changes. So
0: if you did a tennis 100, and I promise I I won't hold you to that or or put (laughs) that in print anywhere you've said that. But if you did, like thinking that, okay, the open era is 50 years roughly. And tennis goes back about 100 years, maybe 90 years before that, to the beginning of Wimbledon. So the open era is a little more than one third of, the whole life of lawn tennis it, how many amateur era, play, era players are in the tennis 100
1: it's a good question that, because that and that really relates directly now to baseball because that was when i was thinking of the baseball 100 i thought well what am i doing with the 19th century players i mean that's those are those are the players that were you know great in their time they're in the hall of fame cap anson and 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 uh, ed delahanty and and a bunch of guys like that what am i doing with them and I really determined that I had to pick a moment of time when the game was fully recognizable to our modern sensibilities. And nineteenth-century baseball, as as you know, fun as it is, as much as I love talking about it, it's it's a, it was a different sport in in so many ways. So you know, I don't know. And now I'm talking off the top of my head because I've not even begun the process. But it feels to me that Tilden was sort of the first player in on the men's side that that I think is recognizable in a way that that, that you know that tennis is recognizable. I mean I'm not I'm not completely writing off the players who who preceded him, but that's a hundred years ago, Bill Tilden and and his incredible dominance of the time feels to me like okay, you can you can start there and then I think you've I think you go from there. I don't know how many, you know, fifties and forties level players. I don't know how many ponchos, you know, you, you put in in a list like this, but I feel like they, they belong. And, and you know, I'm not saying you write off all the entire time before that, but I, I don't, I don't give it the same level. And then I think that as the open era comes along, uh, I, I think tennis does get better. I think the professional, uh, you know, professionalism of tennis changed the, changed the sport and, and the quality got way better. And then of course, as the equipment, uh, got better. The, the, you know, the, you had a whole different thing that happened at tennis. So it, it, there's a lot to consider uh, and a lot to, to think about, but, but to me, I would go back to Tilden and, and probably start there.
0: Yeah, that that certainly seems reasonable. And I like that way of thinking about it because if you watch tennis from the 60s, then it's, I mean, they're hitting pretty soft. I mean, just yes. The, the, yes. The, equipment, the equipment puts some limits on what they do. But on the other hand, the tactics are there. Yep. The, the, the physicality is there, but the fitness is there. I mean, they're really fast. They're really resourceful. They're playing modern tennis. Um, but yeah, once you get back to Spencer Gore and the Renshaws, <laughs> then and it's a different world. Um, and another factor we have here is just the availability of the data. So with, with baseball, I mean, you've got the baseball encyclopedia and total baseball. There's, yes. there's no tennis encyclopedia. There's no total tennis. There's, even, even the ATP and WTA have, have incomplete stats for the open era, which is just mind boggling to me. They're getting better, but it's still it's still not there. And I'm I'm working on it. I'm trying. Yes, to I was going to say that. that's what
1: get on that. This, is, yeah, this is... <laughs> I, I
0: I am. I, I I've I've more or less got the 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 last twenty five years or so of the of the amateur era for women. And I mean, there are gaps there. There are tournaments I don't have. There are early rounds I don't have. There there will be bugs that last forever. But sure. Um, but the, we have something like modern sets, something to compare it to. We can generate. ELO ratings and stuff like that. And maybe this is going to feel like a little bit of a, a, of a logical leap. But one thing you've written about lately, a big story in baseball, is that MLB has has declared the Negro Leagues to be official Major Leagues. And that means that those stats are now official Major League stats, which right. has all, all kinds of uh, implications. And what interests me from the statistical perspective is that... Uh, the the stats are not complete right I mean we have to accept the fact that we don't have every game we'll probably never have every game we're missing some stuff here and there but it's it's important that we not just the symbolism but we recognize those accomplishments for what they were even though it's we're not going to have the same level of thoroughness as we've had with American and National League stats and I I'm wondering, do you think there are, I mean, or let me phrase that a different way. Do you think there are lessons from how you're thinking about Negro league baseball stats as major league baseball stats to how we think about amateur era, era tennis stats in terms of era to era comparisons in tennis? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And look, the thing, the, 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 the Negro league's stats, that's a that's a multifaceted question, right? Because, okay, so the Negro leagues were, were the leagues, uh, and there were several, uh where where African Americans played before and uh for about 13 more years after Jackie Robinson crossed uh the color barrier and uh you know those stats are very they're strange right because because Negro leagues teams didn't play full 162 game seasons or 154 game seasons the way that that they did in the major leagues they played you know they would play weekend games against each other and then during the week they would play all of these uh you know various uh teams town teams they would travel from town to town play double headers against you know, a factory team and then and then move on and then play a uh, an exhibition against white major leaguers and then move on and, and play another, you know, another team and then play a, a real game. And so uh, what do you do with those stats, right? Which of those stats count? Which of those don't? Uh, you know, many of them have been lost to history. And many of the other ones that we might have, we don't really know what to do with. Because, I mean, we, we don't know what it meant for Josh Gibson to hit three home runs off of, you know, some guy who, who worked on an oil rig, right? I mean, so it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very odd thing, but what we do know is that the quality, these were the best, the best players. So these were many of the very best players in the world at the time. uh, And they were not in the major leagues because of the color of their skin. And I think that in amateur tennis, I think uh, amateur era tennis, we know these were the best players. So I think that the statistics as incomplete as they will always be and, and as, you know, as devoid of context as, as they might be um, we know they're the best. And, and so there is, I think tremendous insights to be found from them. You know, tennis, there's very, there's almost no, footage of negro league's baseball i mean there are a few a few things you'll see a few snippets black and white uh home movies but almost no snippets that that you can see uh and tennis there is enough video uh or or movie type stuff that you can watch them play and and i don't know that that helps tennis uh, because, (laughs) because like you said I remember one of one of my favorite moments was uh, Chris Evert was doing. I don't even know which turn which uh, major she was doing, but she was broadcasting it, and it must have been the U.S. Open because they then showed uh, a few highlights of a U.S. Open match she had against uh, Tracy Austin. And in the middle of them showing the highlights, Chris Everett herself says, "Boy, we weren't hitting the ball very hard, were we? You know." And and so so I think when you see Tennis in those days, it it feels like oh gosh, those guys could never you know they could never compete at this level. They could never play in today's game, but of course they could. I mean you know the the way I always look at this is, uh, McEnroe is what now? He's in his sixties, I guess. He's still out there playing in in uh, you know in those in those old timer uh, you know Champions Tour type events, and you still see him hitting like even now, much less to think about what he would have been like 20 years ago, 30 years ago with, with today's rackets and today's equipment and today's balls. He's still good. He's like, he's still like he would, he goes out there and plays against some of the young guys. And of course they're better than him. they're, they're much younger, but he's, his serve still causes problems for them. His volleying is still, you know, electrifying. And so, so I do think that, that, it's so easy to get fooled into thinking that, Oh, because they didn't look like the players of today. Uh, I would trust the stats more in, in many cases, I would trust the, you know, how they competed against the players of their time, I think is, is a, a, a more illuminating way of looking at, at tennis than, than, than maybe just going back and watching some old video.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting. You brought up uh, that little line from Chris Everett because yeah, the, the players from those, that era are almost too honest about it. Like I, I heard yes. the interview with Julie Heldman, who was one of the WTA's the original nine, and sure, and you I know, mean, a, a very good player in her time. I think she probably would have been top ten if there was a if there was an equivalent ranking system. And she said, "Players today are so much better than we were; it's breathtaking." So I mean, <laughs> if, if they're out there saying that, then it's kind of tough to say yes. Julie Heldman belongs in the <laughs> Tennis One Hundred. It's just breathtaking
1: how much better the other women are than she was. It's so funny that is so the opposite generally of how it is in baseball. Where where all baseball players will tell you is how much better they were than the players today. It's so it's it's fascinating. And I think it, it speaks to to uh you yeah, know, particularly I will say on the women's side. Because I don't know if that's a hundred percent true on the men's side. Uh, but particularly on the women's side, the 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 honesty and appreciation of of where the game has come, I think sometimes over it pushes them to the point where they might have underestimated and underrated their own time um but yeah look the game is just different there was there was no. There was no Naomi Osaka in, in those days. There was nobody like Serena. There was nobody that strong. Nobody that, that, you know, the, the, the training methods are completely different and the rackets are completely different and, and, and the game, you know, then, and, and the fact that you, you, you know, make so much money in the game that you don't have to think about anything else. And you can hire, you know, nutritionists and, and coaches and, and practice partners. And I mean, it's just, it's a completely different game than when, uh, you know, Billie Jean King was taking the, the whole tour on a, on a bus with her, you know I mean? It's just, it's just a much, much different time. Um, but look, if you were the best in the world or among the best in the world in your time, there's every reason to believe in my mind that you would, that that would transfer over into, into today's game, because you would just be, a different, you would be different. It's the argument that everybody makes about Babe Ruth in baseball. So people love Babe Ruth in baseball and, and and you know, he is still number one on just about every list when people talk about the greatest players ever. Not your and, list, but, but just about every list. Not my, but he's number two on mine. So he's still, he's still up there. Um, But, you know, the, the question with Babe Ruth is like, the argument is, well, Babe Ruth was a big, chunky, you know, slugger who swung a bat that's twice as heavy as the bats they use today. He would never be able to hit 100-mile-an-hour fastballs and, and, and nasty sliders and and all the things that they face today. He just wouldn't be able to do it. And I think that's right if you just literally took him out of his time and put him, you know, on a field today and said, okay, here, go ahead and try to hit Garrett Cole. I, I don't – there'd be no thing. And, of course, if you took – uh, Chris Everett from 1974, and put her on on the court with Jen Brady. Yeah, she wouldn't have a chance. She would not. She would not have a chance. She would. She's never seen the ball hit that hard. She's never. Uh, but she'd adjust, and they all would. Uh, the greatest athletes would adjust, and and so so if I was doing a tennis 100, and now of course I'm getting more excited about thinking about it all the time. Um, I would I would take that into account. That's not to say I wouldn't weigh it toward modern players. I think you have to, I, I, I did with the baseball, uh, and I would do it again. I think you have to weigh it toward uh modern base tennis because you know, the game is just, it has changed and, and, and they, they are better, uh, in, in all the ways that we've talked about. Uh, but I, I would definitely want, uh, to, to have it reflect the time and, and being the best in the world in your time, uh, Still puts you right up there in my
0: mind. Yeah, and it's interesting that the, the argument you make that the players would adjust that, that, that they would just be different. It it all these things go both ways. That I mean, yes, Babe Ruth would have a hard time hitting Garrett Cole, but I mean, Mike Trout might struggle facing spitballers. Right. Um, and you're probably familiar with Bill Jenkinson's work. He he's, yes he's argued that he's he's looked at all these things that Babe Ruth had to face that contemporary contemporary plays don't. And he ends up arguing that Babe Ruth was was better than his numbers suggest, that he has right. 800, 800 something career home runs. And it, I mean, it's, it, there's not a direct line to, the, to tennis from that, but I mean, give Ralph on the doll a wooden racket yeah. and, and make sure he goes out and has a six pack of beers every night <laughs> and, and see how he manages against Ken Rosewall.
1: <laughs> it's a, it's a, Look, I have thought about this almost as much as I've thought about players coming to today. What would Rafael Nadal's game look like with a wooden racket? He could not do any of the things he does. He would never be able to hit. You have a wooden racket the size of a quarter, the way the way those guys were playing with, he couldn't hit that topspin shot. First of all, he'd break the racket every every swing doing what he does. But he wouldn't be able to hit the topspin the way these guys do. I mean, he would absolutely have to be a completely different player. This is my thing. Maybe maybe we can make this happen. I want there to be one tournament where they all use wooden rackets. <laughs> I, I I've been I've been dying for this. I just would love to see those guys. They wouldn't do it. It's probably like. It's probably like the baseball home run derby. It would wreck them for like another six months afterward or something. But I would love to see those guys play with, you know, the, the, not just the, not just the wood, but, but uh, Jimmy Connors, uh, crazy T 2000 racket, that, that, that thing that that was like a catapult and, and Bjorn Borg's, you know, whatever the heck that thing was made out of racket. And, and I, I would love to see these guys because the game it would instantly change the game. There was, there is only so much you could do. And I think it would bring back styles. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I have an opinion. Okay. So here's, here's my theory, uh, cause I've thought about the greatest of all time thing in, in, uh, about every way I could possibly think of it. <laughs> and one way I thought about it is okay. If you put Federer, Nadal and Djokovic out there with wood rackets, who would win? And I think it would be Federer. I did, and I'm I'm a I you have read, I'm sort of a Djokovic guy when it comes to to the to the to the overall who's the best. But I think if you put him out there, because who would be the one that would be out, out there able to serve and volley? Who would be the one that would be out there and able to just absolutely hit the ball clean uh, you know, with with slices and and just dicing an opponent? I mean, not to downplay what Djokovic or the doll could do. Cause they, they're obviously, they probably, you know, the doll is one of the greatest volleyers in the world and, and he, he doesn't even need to be. And, and Djokovic is such a great all around player, but I still think I'd put my money on Federer if, if it was an all wood racket uh, tournament.
0: Well, that's, that's something to suggest to the ATP. They're trying to reach out to some new segments of fans. Yes. Uh, there is there is a tiny subculture, I think it's mostly in the UK, that that, that plays vintage tennis, like the like the 19th century baseball people who are oh, nice. creating that, that scene. I haven't seen it, but I've just, I've just read a little bit about it. But it is out there. Um, so one last question. I've already kept you for longer than I promised, but I hope you'll uh, give me one more. I love it great uh okay another hour then yes Um, i'm ready to go let's let's keep going let's talk just about the 70s all right okay (laughs) um no the, the the last thing i wanted to ask was you did a you did an episode with my friend carl um i think it was about a year and a half ago after the 2019 wimbledon final and 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 you said you'd like to spend a year traveling with the tennis tour and We'll put that on your calendar right after finishing the Tennis 100th. <laughs> but I'm, I'm wondering, like, you read a lot about tennis, you follow the sport carefully, um, but I mean, you've carved out your own niche for coverage in baseball and other sports. I'm wondering, what, what do you think your tennis coverage would look like? Or what are the tennis stories that you would want to tell that aren't getting
1: told now? Well... You know, I I I wouldn't. I don't know that I that I've got stories to tell that other people aren't telling. Because I mean, there's there's some great 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 tennis journalists out there all over the place, and and uh, and I love reading what they're doing. So I'm not. I don't. I don't have any claim that I would be able to offer anything. For me, I would just love to spend a year. Here, here, okay. So if there's one thing I would love more as a tennis junkie, which is I guess I can definitely put myself as that. I don't feel like I read enough about the tennis itself. Like a lot of what I'm reading is, is, and most of what I write is, you know, so I understand it. It's personality driven. It's, it's uh, you know, when, when it's sort of, how did you feel and, 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 you know, how did you overcome this and how did you overcome that? But I'm so fascinated by the by the the little ins and outs you know the inside baseball elements of tennis uh i would love to dive into some of that um i i you know in my dream and it is my dream right so this is what i told carl and what i believe uh to be in my dream i travel 12 months with my wife we go out we we literally go week to week and, and and write about tennis every week And I would do it like they would be dispatches, you know, I I don't, who was going to pay me to do this? Nobody, but, but they would be dispatches much in the same way that, uh, that my hero Roger Angel wrote for baseball. So they would just be these, you know, I would, I would pick something that, that, that week and I wouldn't cover it like for the tournaments themselves. So maybe there'd be some of that at the, at the biggest tournaments, but I would write about, for example, um, you know, I would I would want to do a whole thing on the return of serve. I, I I'm utterly fascinated by the return of serve. I think it is the most, uh, you know, even though certainly there's been plenty of talk about it with Djokovic in particular. To me, the return of serve is is the most important shot in tennis, and and uh, you know, and that's purely again the amateur in me watching it, but. I don't know I don't know how they do it. I don't get it, you know? I mean it's 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 there are times when Djokovic in particular, which is why I love watching him so much, will return serve consistently so well that you can almost sense the guy uh, across the net like afraid to serve. Uh which is which is so funny. And I thought that did happen by the way to to Medvedev Where, you know, Medvedev's serve had been such a, such a dominant force throughout the entire tournament and they were getting, they were getting crushed back at him with such regularity that you could just sense this this unease, uh, every time he served and, and you could sense him knowing he couldn't, he couldn't get to a second serve cause he, he had no way to win a second serve. So he's taken a little bit off his first serve, which is exactly the worst thing you could do in that situation. And, and so I would love to just break down return to serve. I would love to, uh, talk about coaching exactly what you said. I, I would love to try to figure out what the heck. Uh, a coach does for Naomi Osaka. I would love to, to, you know, break down what it's like, you know, because these, these, these players know each other and there's, there's a friendship level in tennis that I think is different from any other sport. Uh, You know, I, one of the, one of my favorite parts of every match is seeing at the end, how they, how they treat each other uh, at the net, you know, I mean, is there, is there sort of the, the tapping of rackets, or is there an embrace, or is there, you know? And I, I wonder about that relationship. That fascinates me. So, so that would be the goofy thing that I would bring to it. I think is is just my own perceptions. And then, of course, I'd want to ask each of them how I can improve my backhand and <laughs> and things like that. So, so yeah, it would it would I would definitely bring I would definitely bring sort of this. I I, I think I write about tennis differently from any other sport. Because it's the one sport I play, and it's the one sport that uh, I, I I'm a I'm a real junkie for. Completely unrelated to professional. I mean, I love baseball, but I would not. I watch tennis. Uh, you know, I, I I write about baseball. Uh, I don't write as much as I want about tennis, but I still watch it constantly. Uh, so I would I would probably bring some of that to it, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and, and you're definitely preaching to the choir here—not just me, but probably my listeners, because they've heard me say one of those things so many times that there needs to be more tennis writing about just the game itself. And yeah. the ret- return of serve is a is a fantastic example there. And it's it's interesting that you would come from that perspective, but I think almost every tennis journalist is is an amateur player, yeah, decent but not great. I mean, I, I've never participated, but at the U.S. Open, there's a there's a media tournament that I think is pitched at about our level. Um, so, I mean, a a lot of people have the, they have that perspective, at least it's in there, in there somewhere. And, and, And do you think it's just the, like the, the media, the business itself of, you know, getting clicks and, and I guess not filling column inches anymore, but getting clicks and getting Twitter engagement and all that stuff, is that preventing that, those kind of stories from being written?
1: It's interesting. I, I don't, I don't think it's that exactly. I mean, of course, it's not, a, it's not about getting clicks, but of course, if there's a controversy or if there's a, a big personality or whatever, I mean, that's every sport. The, the fascinating thing to me about tennis is how different the coverage is, in my mind anyway, than it is with golf. Because in golf, every writer who, who covers golf, except me, plays golf. Like I didn't play. I never played golf, but I still wrote a lot about golf and I wrote the back page column for golf magazine and, and, and other things, but I never played. I didn't never play. I've been on a golf course, but I don't play golf. That's not, that's not my game. And yet almost every single player, uh, every, uh, writer is a player as well. Every writer is a golfer. In fact, it's one of the, one of the great, uh, sort of little insider, uh, funny moments about. Uh, golf is that it is the only sport where when people are waiting for Phil Mickelson or Tiger Woods or or Dustin Johnson or whoever it is, when the golfers are sort of in this circle, you'll see two or three of them practicing their golf swing while they're <laughs> waiting for the golfer to come. Like, well, like are you thinking he's going to ask you to play? Like, well, like, It's it's really funny. I think it's similar in tennis in that I think most players who play uh, uh, but I don't think that tennis writers in general feel like they are writing for tennis players. I think golf golf writers know they're writing for golfers uh, because there's so many golfers out there. Uh, if you are really really into golf, you probably play it. Uh, tennis, I think I think people feel like they're writing for more of a mainstream audience. And and when you're writing for more of a mainstream audience, you think you are writing about. Uh, you know the personalities. You think you are writing about the controversies. I think you are writing about the horse race. You know who's the greatest, who's number one, who's going to move into number one. I mean, I, I think that's a that's a that's where the sport is. I feel like it's covered more like boxing in that way. You know, I think very few boxing writers are also boxers. So I, I feel like it's it's written more to, to to reach a mainstream audience, while golf is. You know, when you're watching golf, uh, you will see 500 golf commercials, right, to, for for the new driver that that uh, Ping is putting out, or the new the new uh, Titleist golf ball, or the new whatever it is. In tennis, you will see a, an occasional sort of very cheaply made tennis express commercial, uh, but but generally, you are not seeing tennis commercials with tennis, other than Rolex sort of bragging about, you know, about uh, the, the class that is Roger Federer or whatever. And and so I, I think the sport is covered differently because I think people feel like they're not really writing for tennis players. They're writing for a mainstream audience that only will pay attention every now and again. Yeah, that's
0: such an interesting point. I'd, ne- I'd never thought about that comparison with golf because it, with, w- with a lot of older tennis, I've been watching a lot of 70s and 80s broadcasts over the last couple of years. And the sure. commentators are they really get in the weeds. Like, yeah. you'll have Arthur Ashe talking about, you know, the 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 weights that players string their rackets at, <laughs> the exact type and composition of the rackets, the effect of different types of balls. Like, you get that a little bit nowadays, but, I mean, John McEnroe never talks about that stuff. No, on, no. On broadcast. And the market used to be there, and I guess the whole public parks explosion of tennis is, I mean, it's a couple of generations ago, so it's not really happening the way it did then, but... It, I mean, it seems like most most tennis fans are tennis players. Certainly, if you go to a tournament, it looks like everybody there is <laughs> is a tennis player. I mean, my audience probably isn't reflective of anything, but I feel like most people listening to this are are casual tennis players. They're sure. interested in this stuff. And I mean, so I mean, do you think that, that that writers
1: or editors? Do you think they have their audience wrong? I don't know, but boy, I'm so fascinated by what you said about McEnroe because. I, it always strikes me. Here's one of the greatest players of all time, and not only one of the greatest players, but but an utterly unique player, right? Because of, of the way he the way he served and volleyed every time, and 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 just the way you know, and and of course his his fights with Borg and and this, that, and the other. And every time he talks, he he does not. He, he does not go into tennis. I mean, he will now and again, but mostly he'll talk about, oh, well, the momentum of the crowd, he's trying to win the crowd over. He talks about the crowd all the time. And it makes me think in my mind, like, wow, I did not realize that the crowd played as big a role. In, in a tennis matches. I mean, I always knew it was there, but he talks about it. Like it is the singular most important thing. He needs to get the crowd fired up and, 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 oh, you know, the crowd turning on him is a big factor here. And I'm like, man, I, 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 I get all that, but you're John McEnroe. I, I'd love to hear what, what you think about breaking down the difference between the, the, you know, Medvedev's backhand and Djokovic's backhand. I'd love to hear like, why, what, what makes them different? And, and, you know, like how would you
0: serve against Novak Djokovic, John?
1: Right, right. How exactly, how would you serve? And, and, and would you, uh, you know, he, he the other thing he does talk about all the time, and this does speak directly to him, uh, is, is coming in. He's always like players. He, he wants players to come in a lot more. Uh, and he, he always, he does talk about that. Um, but not really the strategic elements. I I here's here's sort of my one sort of beef with with the way that Djokovic has been covered through the years. To me, Novak Djokovic is an utterly unique player. And and there are reasons for this that I happen to, to feel. But he's he's not been covered that way. He's been covered like you know, people will talk about his return of serve, but generally, you know, everybody talks about the all court game of Federer and the way he moves, and 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 you know, this and that. everybody talks about the warrior that is that is Nadal and and you know the heavy topspin, but it's like, well, why is Djokovic? You know, why, why did he beat those guys? You know, what, what is it about his game? And then you'll hear like, oh, he's a backboard. That's, that's not it. He's not a backboard. I mean, he's yes, he can go out there and, and not play mistakes, but I, I don't think there's a better player in the world. and And I've not seen a better player who is more creative at the net when it comes to hitting drop shots and then coming in behind them. Like the shots you will see him hit when people try to drop shot him or when he hits a drop shot and they get to it. Uh, and he's it's it's brilliance. I never see anybody talk about it and he does it. It's not like he's doing it. You know, he's been doing this for years and years and they'll say, oh, you know, he's hitting the drop shot, you know, he, he he's given up on the point or this then the other and it's the guy is he's a genius when it comes to the angles up close at the net. I I don't think anybody hits those shots the way he does. And yet, I never really read about that. I think that, to me, is is my beef: is that I don't think we break down these players' tactics and 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 what makes them so good as much as as we do, and frankly, in other sports.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's particularly true with Djokovic because he is he's always been cast as the challenger, not quite the yeah. bad boy, but he's. He's a bit of an outsider, and the the drop shot example is so interesting because I didn't hear much about it until probably last year, and I saw some people talking about it on Twitter. And he's hitting the backhand drop shot more, I think, these Mm -hmm. days. And a, I mean, he's a guy who's 34 years old, one of the greatest players of all time, and he's willing to change his game more than maybe anybody else out there. And he's willing to do it before he can really do it. I mean, that that's the amazing thing is that I mean, how many think back to how much Roger Federer we've watched over the years and how many mistakes can you see him right. making on court? Not like, not unforced errors, but how many things he tries to do that he can't really do. Like, it's, yeah. it, it's basically zero. And Nadal, basically zero. But Djokovic, like, he's trying out a, hitting a drop shot more from weaker positions. He's mm-hmm. trying going to the net at different times. He's trying hitting bigger serves. Like, he makes mistakes. He's putting himself in that position. And, I mean, that the, the fact that he's willing to take risks that other players aren't on top of being better, I mean, that's... That's scary stuff
1: yeah well and that is that is a hundred percent right and 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 that is why I love him that's why that's why I love 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 watching him play no no offense to Federer and Nadal who I love watching play as well. but Roger Federer in 2018 2017 is not significantly different than Roger Federer in 2009. You know, his backhand got better, and he improved some parts of his game. But it was the same player, and and it was the same game. Uh, same thing with Nadal. Nadal's game itself is is it's well, why would you change it? But I mean, it's he's the same player, and of course he's improved some things too. He improved his to serve. Uh, you know, he like I say, he's so underrated at the net. He's so good there. But Djokovic, man, he just it's not that he's he's different, completely different. It's not like he's unrecognizable from 2011 of course most of his game is the same but yes the drop shot and and the angles he hits uh from from up close and and the way he's improved to serve and 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 the way he goes more of the bad the only thing that hasn't changed about him is he's no good at the at the overhead like that's (laughs) the only that's the only it's the only part of his game that sort of seems to stay the same um but yeah that's the part I love so so you asked the sort of the the original question what is it that I would love to do I'd love to answer all of these questions that I have in my mind about tennis well and I
0: think that's really the foundation of the best journalism whether it's tennis or something else entirely is that I mean, not not feeding the clicks or reporting on the latest controversy but you know come up with a good question and figure out how to answer it and yeah that's, that's right. my goal anyway. I don't succeed all the time, but it would be better if more You of
1: succeed time. a lot of the time. You you definitely do. And look, I think I think that that another element of this and the element that you're, you know, right atop of is is how much we can learn about the game through through the analytics and through through this, you know, the stats and through this. And and, and not just just the the, the improve the, the we can watch the game in such an improved way. It feels to me like, like I have sensed in my mind that Djokovic hits the drop shot a lot more now, um, but I want to see that, right? I want to see the numbers like they do every so often. They'll have some fantastic numbers in, during a tennis match. Sometimes sometimes the numbers make no sense to me. Like they'll be like, Oh, this person has run, you know, 1.4 miles. Like, I don't know what that means. I don't
0: Yeah, Or 3,100
1: RPM. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't care. But when they show me that, that basically the average, that, that Djokovic is hitting from 10 feet closer on the serve, uh, or than Medvedev or that Medvedev, you know, that that Medvedev is only hitting 8% of his, of his shots from inside the baseline and Djokovic is hitting 20%. Oh, I get that. Like that makes sense to me. Okay, so so this is this is you know the way they're playing. So so I love this stuff. I you know like I said, I really could talk about it all day.
0: Well, I would I would love that, um, and we'll definitely do this again. Um, but yeah, like I said, I promised I'd let you go a long time ago, and <laughs> I'm I'm soon going to have an infant presence in my home that's going to drastically lessen my recording quality. So this is this is as good a place as any to stop. So. Joe, thank you so much for joining me. This has been great.
1: Awesome, Jeff. This has been really a lot of fun for me.
0: And everyone, as I said before, you can find Joe's writing at The Athletic. You should read his book about Harry Houdini. You should pre-order his book, The Baseball 100. And you should read his book, The Soul of Baseball, about Buck O'Neill. So check out my daily podcast, Expected Points, as well. I'll be back with another guest later this week, actually, on the Tennis Abstract Podcast. And thank you, everyone, for listening.